Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to take this time to share with us. You are viewing us either on YouTube or listening to us on uh, iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Prime. As we always like to say, if there's a way that we can improve our podcast, you're invited to uh, share with us. You can reach out to me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net. And I just said it wrong because I've been saying cox.net for a long time. It's fredjeffsmith at gmail.com. We changed that this year. fredjeffsmith at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing and how we can do it better. I am extremely happy uh, to welcome Mrs. Brandy B. Harris here with us. Mrs. Harris is the morning anchor. I'm sure many of you recognize her from WBRZ Television. Uh, she also has her own television program, uh, Love 225. Did I say that mm-hmm, correctly? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for taking the time to come and share with us today. Tell us about how you came into broadcast journalism. How, how did you make that choice? My sister started off in broadcast journalism. Uh, uh, she, she went to school for that and somehow or other ended up being a lawyer. How did you stay the course to broadcast journalism? So one, do I call you Pastor Smith? Fred. Fred, Fred works. Just Fred? Okay, Fred works okay. just fine. Um, so, well, Fred, my career is not even a choice. This is, is not an accident. It's definitely by design. I've been pretending to be the person that I am now or that I'm growing into my entire life. So we have family videos, hundreds of me <laughs> as a little kid, like pre-braces, no teeth, like, you know, like my front teeth had fallen out and I'm like reporting on everything. Mm-hmm. We would go on these family vacations. I, I grew up in Labadeville. I call myself a Don the Bayou kind of girl. I grew up in Labadeville on the Bayou side of Highway 308 in Assumption okay. Parish. That's where my, my dad's from. My grandparents are from. Um, specifically, my uncle, my godfather, which I'll explain later when we get further into it. But um, those people are like the core of my family foundation. And I spent every afternoon there at my grandparents' house. They live two minutes up the highway, right? Mm-hmm. Um and my uncle, one of my uncles had a camera, and I would just make them pull out the... Anytime they pulled out the camera, I would jump up, this is Brandy Bailey, and we're reporting live at the Watermelon Harvest of 1994. Um, you know, and I would be directing the scene and reporting the news. A lot of times... Um, so you're both in front and behind the camera. You're, you're well, doing... no, I'm in front of the camera telling <laughs> okay. the people behind telling the camera Telling them how to what do. to do. Yeah, I got exactly. you. I got you. So um, we, would, we had a, a very strict routine at my grandparents' house. So just to kind of back up, down to Bayou, you know, when my parents were my age and they were just starting their careers, they were in their early 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, my siblings and I were real young. They would have to be at work sometimes early in the morning. A lot of times in those sleepy bayou towns, there's not a lot of um, economic opportunity. So mm-hmm. their jobs were often 30, 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So the routine was 
you'd get dropped off at your grandmother's in the morning before school. She'd bring you to school. You'd ride a bus to her school in the afternoon, go back to her house. Mm-hmm. So that routine, the discipline of that routine is really what got me into the discipline where I am now. So in the mornings, they watch WWL, baby. Every single morning at 5 a.m., they turn it on the news. When you got home from school, if you were off of school, at noon, we're watching the news. You know, um, after that, we're watching uh, the days of our lives and, you know, watching the stories. I remember those days, yes. Then in the afternoons, when I got back from school, it was Oprah, Jeopardy, the 5 o'clock evening news, the world news, the 6 o'clock news, entertainment tonight, the 10 o'clock news. They were all about, everybody in my family is an educator. They were all about knowing what's going on in the world. Right. So in the 90s, when I would be there, you know, my parents may go on a date night or they may have, you know, events for their jobs. And I would stay in my grandparents house overnight and we'd watch Jay Leno. And Jay Leno had this segment. I don't remember what it was called, but it was like a street beat where he would mm-hmm. go out with a mic and he'd ask people super simple civic questions. Who's that the vice president? Answer. And they couldn't answer. I remember that. Yes. And that's when they would always remind us, this is why we watch the news. Yeah. This is why you need to watch the news every day. And yeah. I'm talking, they would tell me this in first and second grade. Yeah. You know, when I would be like, I just want to watch cartoons. No, we watch the news at five o'clock. We watch the news at six o'clock because... To them, it was an embarrassment if you don't know who your civic leaders are right there in your little town Certainly. or in the country or in the state. That was very important to them. And again, mm-hmm. everybody was an educator, my grandfather, my grandmother, my dad. So it was all about being aware of how you connect to the world around you. Mm-hmm. You said WWL as a child. Was that during the time of Angela Hill? That was Angela Hill. Okay. Yeah. Did, did you take anything from Angela Hill? Have you applied any of that to what you're currently doing? Not Angela. I lived in New Orleans yes, for a while. Yes, and, no, and so not I, Angela. I remember Angela Hill. So I'm glad you know the personalities. <laughs> yes. Not Angela. But obviously, um, in the morning, I would watch Sally Ann okay. and Eric Paulson. Sally Ann Roberts, that's yes. uh, Robin Roberts' sister, yes. which I always think that there's a small connection there because I'm on ABC. Her sister comes on right after me every morning. So yes, that's one of those things. But the person that really had a huge impact on me, and actually, my grandparents tell me all the time I need to reach out to her is hold a copy she was a, a reporter okay. she was a reporter at Channel 4 in New Orleans when I was a kid so a lot of those home videos I'm like this is Hoda Kotb and we're reporting live in Thibodeau with whatever was going on mm-hmm. um, so I was and I really was impersonating them it, it wasn't that I wanted I just knew I wanted to be a reporter. Mm-hmm. I knew I liked to entertain my grandparents and my paran who um I'll tell you about him later but Shelby was in a wheelchair and he was my number one fan or my uncles or you know all of my cousins I just like to entertain everybody. I like to make everybody smile. I like to be the center of attention. I know that sounds bad but I like no, to No, it's not. I, the stage was where I always shined, you know. Arthur Neville was on locally at that time too. Do you did you get to watch her at all? No, not really. Like once I found the people that I liked, I liked That's Sally Ann and with. Eric in the morning, and mm-hmm. I liked Hoda Kotb in the evenings because, looking back on it now, I think it's because even though she was doing news, like mm-hmm. serious news, she has such a personality, and I I felt like I could connect with that, and I just mm-hmm. really really liked that. And I mean, there were other people throughout the time. I would say Sally Ann and Robert. I mean, and Eric were were pretty big ones because they were on every morning. Five o'clock. While I'm getting ready for school, yes. eating our breakfast, you know, and Eric is making jokes, but Sally Ann has these serious tidbits, you yes. know. So um, I just always felt a very real connection to that. And again, a lot of times it was just me mimicking them, right? Same thing with people on the radio. Um, I would always make my paran laugh because 
I could be like, um, it's your girl, Uptown Angela. But then he'd be like, okay, now do the interview. I'd be like, man, we out here on the parade route. And I would sound just like the people in the interview. And I could sound like the person that was doing the interview. And really, I just got a lot of joy out of mm -hmm. entertaining and telling those stories. And now I realize that that's pretty much the core of the job is storytelling. You know, and obviously I don't get to pretend to be someone else. I got to mm -hmm. be me. But that's the, the great thing of it is that I've grown into who I am by doing this. So when you came to Southern, uh, you, you're, you're a Southern grad. Mm -hmm. Your parents are Southern mm -hmm. grads. And my um, grandparents. And your grandparents yeah. are Southern grads. Um, you came knowing that you were going to major in broadcast journalism? Or Absolutely not. So long story. So actually, I didn't start at Southern. I actually started at another school okay. majoring in science because, um, you know, when you're growing up, all I wanted to do was be on stage. I thought I was going to be a rock star or a dancer on a world tour mm -hmm. or, you know, a fashion designer. I tried so many. I have I, my mom always called me a jack of all trades and a master at none because I just had all these different creative outlets. I took dance, you know, my whole life mm -hmm. until I graduated high school. So when it got to junior high, high school, really prior to that, anytime somebody asked me, Brandy, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be on TV. I want to be famous. I'm be in a movie. I'm mm -hmm. be on a tour or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then as I got older, Brandy, what do you want to do when you grow up? And then I would say that, okay, well, that's not real. You got to pick something more concrete. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you know, early 2000s, science STEM was a big part of the conversation. You know, we were getting more into the technology age, mm -hmm. and it was you need to pick a STEM career. You need mm -hmm. to focus on science studies, on math studies, on engineering, because those are going to be secure jobs. And my family, again, everybody is an educator, so the only thing that they can really fathom is being a teacher, right? The most successful person not that I'm so successful, but the most successful person in my family that was not a teacher was a doctor. So the bar was kind of high. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so got to high school, and I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to follow my aunt. I'm going to be a doctor. And I'm going to major in science and biology, and I'm going to go to med school and do blah, 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 blah. Um, I actually just went speak at a church a couple weeks ago, um, and I realized that while I'm, I actively made the choice to, yeah, I'm going to study science. I'm going to go to med school. God didn't want that. wasn't the plan for me. That did not work out. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of trials and tribulations mm -hmm. trying to force that, right? Um, tribulations with my family because they didn't understand why I wasn't performing well when I'd always done well in school. It should mm -hmm. be super easy. You can do anything you want to do, you mm -hmm. know? Well, I know that to be true. That does not actually apply right now. And I, mm -hmm. for a few years, I couldn't figure out why. So um, I took some lots of time off. I went to BRCC, um, studied like super basic level classes. And then one day, my grandmother from down the bayou, Carol C. Bailey, who I get my whole Brandy B. thing from, um, you know, they would always, I would almost kind of started avoiding my family because I didn't want to be a disappointment. I was used to being, like I said, the center of attention, the mm -hmm. person that made, entertained everybody and made everybody laugh and stuff. I started to become more recluse, more withdrawn, and they would always be checking on me, you know, what you going to do and like, what's your plan? And, you know, we worried about you and we just want to know that you're going to be able to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I finally told her, you know, I don't think I want to do science, mother. Like, it's just not for me, it doesn't, I know it sounds crazy, but like it doesn't speak to me and it doesn't make me happy and I just don't see it working out. And she said, you know what, baby, you only get one life to live and nobody got to live it but you. Good for her. 
So if it makes you happy and you can look in the mirror every day and you can hold your head up high, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what I think or what your parents think or what your parent thinks. And that single conversation, I literally say that phrase to people all the time. It changed my entire life. Mm -hmm. And now I tell everybody anytime I can, you only get one life to live and nobody got to live it but you. Yes. So if you cool with your decisions and you can live with it and you're happy with it and it speaks for you, it doesn't matter what I think. I'm not here to, I can't judge you. Mm -hmm. um, that really changed my life. So then that was when I decided, you know what, let me look into what are the real ways that a person can be on TV. Mm -hmm. And that was when I realized, oh, there's like a whole major, like you can actually get a degree in this. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's easy. <laughs> and then it literally just started to, I mean, to me, like that conversation was almost like divine intervention because I was going to go get a full-time job somewhere and just hit the work industry, you mm -hmm. know, and instead I went to school and I pretty much had to start all over, you know, at Southern. But like you said, that was when I realized my story was starting to fall into place how it was supposed to. My grandparents went to Southern. My parents went to Southern. Mm -hmm. I met a boy at Southern. Now we're married. You know what I mean? And same thing. It was the same thing for him. His grandparents, parents. So as I started to fall more into what I think is my purpose, things just started to really fall into place. And mm -hmm. the further I've gotten from like that conversation with my grandmother, the more I look back and I recognize this is my purpose. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And mm -hmm. it really just feels like it just lights my soul on fire. And I can, I, I spread myself too thin sometimes because mm -hmm. I'm just so full of energy and joy and creativity. And just, I feel fulfilled by doing this as, as fulfilled as I did as a kid, just putting on shows for my family. You mentioned at one point that you have siblings. Where mm -hmm. do you fall in that number? You, the you can't oldest, tell I'm the, the oldest. You can't tell that I'm the oldest. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I have a brother who's six years older, but he left when I was like 12 years old. So some people tell me I have the tendencies of the older child, but I'm actually the middle child. So mm -hmm. I I couldn't tell whether you were the oldest, the middle, the yeah, baby. Yeah, no, I'm the oldest, and my sisters absolutely can't stand it because I've always been this way. Like, my dad calls me Big Brand, like Big Mama, because <laughs> Brandy was always, like, bossing everybody around mm -hmm. and putting on the shows, for example. Um, always loved Destiny's Child, Beyonce, when I was a kid, right? We have videos to prove it, but I would very seriously make my sisters pretend to put on a Destiny's Child concert with me and they have to practice with choreography <laughs> and wardrobe changes. Okay. And I took it, like, if they weren't taking it wardrobe seriously. Wardrobe changes. Yes. And if you don't take it seriously, you are, like, disowned from the siblinghood because, okay. you know, um, but that's what I mean by production. And it was just an outlet for creativity is what I recognize now um, of being able creating a stage for me to do the things that I want to do. Kind of mm -hmm. like coming up with Love 225, creating that outlet for myself. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm older, I definitely recognize that making something out of nothing comes from being the oldest because mm -hmm. I had plenty of times I just had to figure out how to, you know, entertain, how to keep us busy mm -hmm. because that was my responsibility. So you grew up in a rural community, uh, you live now in Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is not the largest city in the state, but it's the second largest. And if you count the parish, it's the largest metropolitan area in the state post-Katrina. What do you see as the biggest difference between rural living and, if I can call it, urban living, urban living? Well, the biggest difference 
one, let me say this, because we did move to the Midwest for a while. Okay. So I find that rural rural and urban living here is different from rural and urban living in other parts of the country. One, specifically for black people, okay. we have a lot of familial connections here, a lot. Like mm-hmm. most people, I don't know a lot of black folks around here who don't have family around here. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas other rural and urban areas, a lot of black folks can't say the same. Mm-hmm. So here, I don't, when I say the difference is, I, it would be population size and density, I think. Um, maybe access to opportunity and economic development, those kind of things, obviously, those physical things that we can all see out there. Um, Do you think aspirations differ from rural to urban living? Or oh, yeah. Okay, you- so one, I, I always said, um, in a lot of the small towns, I'm not going to talk about North Louisiana because I don't know about North Louisiana like that. <laughs> I do know in South Louisiana, it's a bunch of just happy folks. They mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of um, got to get it, that getting the money kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I do find that in the city there's a lot more of keeping up with the Joneses mm-hmm. to an extent, whereas in the rural areas, nobody got nothing. So it's not a whole lot of keep to keep up with, so to say, but... In today's climate, the economic climate, I think that that still applies whether you're in the small towns or in the city. For me, living in the small town, I always thought that the city was like where it was. Mm -hmm. And now I recognize that wherever I'm at is where it is, whatever it is that Mm -hmm. I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Does that answer? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, Some people want to live even if they work in the city. They want to maintain a rural existence. Uh, Hall Davis, who owns Mm. the largest black funeral home home in the city, Uh, his work is here, Mm -hmm. but he lives over the river out near New Roads. That's where his uh, ranch is. I don't think they call it a farm. I think it's a ranch. Mm -hmm. And he has horses out there. And he loves that contact with nature, and, and he says he doesn't mind making a 20-minute drive into town to work, but he wants to get back to that. And I was just curious, in that you were raised in a rural area, do you still have a yearning for rural living, or, 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 or did you pass that on to your to your children? Well, we live in Zachary. Okay. My husband is a country boy. Okay. He's from Washington, Louisiana, okay. which is a little, little, little town right outside of Opelousas, mm-hmm. the St. Landry Parish. He will never live in a city. I will never be able to get him to live in a city. And I think the best we can always agree on is like, um, like those right outside the city. It's kind of like you know Zachary, some of those smaller towns mm-hmm. right around mm-hmm. where I still need a Walmart and I still need a Walgreens. <laughs> Why do you think you live in Zachary? Uh-huh. Why do you think Zachary has not built a movie theater yet? I have always I, said it's coming. If they build a movie theater up there, people will never come back this way for it's anything coming. at all. They're, remember, they're having a billion dollars of innovation right now. They're mm-hmm. building the canal. There's so many subdivisions that have just been approved. Thousands of homes are yeah. coming to Zachary. I believe it's coming. I'm really pretty. We're getting a TJ Maxx. So I'm really? excited. Yes, it, they've got a sign up and everything. We're okay. very excited about the TJ Maxx. Okay. I'm hoping for a Target and a Chick-fil-A. Yeah. So you 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 send some prayers up for that, and I'll be happy. And maybe I won't ever have to. But I lo- my grandmother lives in Baton Rouge. I have family all over South Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So I have an appreciation for all of it. And to be honest, I wouldn't be able to just be in Zachary all the time. I wish my husband was here because he could tell you I'm a busybody. Well, I like to be home there. Mm-hmm. I On Saturday mornings, we got to get up. We've got to hit the streets. We've got to get to Baton Rouge, okay. whether that be for 
shopping or the movies or just to be out and about, you mm-hmm. know, um, watching Baton Rouge grow over these last umpteen years has been pretty phenomenal to watch the development of different um, festivals and businesses and, you know, that there's stuff to do downtown. And I just I, I find that I have a deeper appreciation for Baton Rouge than I think I did some years ago. Now, there's still a lot of issues. I'm not saying it's perfect. It's a lot of issues. Well, let's talk about that okay. for a second. I'm a native of Baton mm-hmm. Rouge, and I'm a tad bit older than you, mm-hmm. uh, pro- <laughs> probably twice your age. Uh, so I remember a different North Baton Rouge than what media portrays North Baton mm-hmm. Rouge mm-hmm. to be. Media today suggests that anything that's north of Florida Boulevard is North Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. North Baton Rouge is up by Southern, mm-hmm. Southern Heights, Park mm-hmm. Vista, Glen Oaks. Scotlandville. Scotlandville. Yeah. That's yeah. North Baton Rouge. Consequently, any little development that they do just north of Florida Boulevard, they say, well, see the improvements that we're making in North Baton Rouge. That's not my North mm-hmm. Baton Rouge. Now, I, I grant you, I'm older, so I have a different perspective than yours. But when you look at the difference between North and South, what's your appreciation for what's needed? You live in Zachary. Mm-hmm. What's needed for North Baton Rouge to thrive the way that South Baton Rouge has thrived. Investment in infrastructure, number one. Like, that's off the top. Let's let's start with the Florida Boulevard thing. Um, I did a, a, a special on racism on WBRZ in 2020. Um, maybe it was 2021. 2020. It mm-hmm. must have been 2020. Um, when everyone was doing their, they were rectifying race and stuff all over the country. I mm-hmm. said, well, we can do that right here. Why do we call it North Baton Rouge? Why is Florida Boulevard treated as the Mason-Dixie line of the city of Baton Rouge when mm-hmm. it's all one Baton Rouge? There, mm-hmm. You know, some cities do have this area is its own designated district. This city does not have that. Why mm-hmm. do we treat it that way? Same thing even with South Baton Rouge. Why is there an old South Baton Rouge and there's a South Baton Rouge? Because old South Baton Rouge is black. We, there we go. We already <laughs> That's know, why. We already know that. Why does it take people to constantly um, complain about a food desert being in, quote-unquote, North Baton Rouge mm-hmm. for finally one grocery market to say we're going to build one right on the Mason-Dixie line. In- investment. It's a divestment. And it's the wrong supermarket. It's a divestment <laughs> in those communities, a divestment in that area, because some people, most likely political leaders over the last several decades, decided that it wasn't worth it, that it wasn't valuable. You know what I mean? It's the same thing with, in that same racism special, we went through the EPA guidelines to point out that 11, I think it's 11 of the 14 toxic waste sites in East Baton Rouge Parish are in North Baton Rouge. Of course. So, Investment in infrastructure, investment in healthcare, investment in education, that it just needs investment. And it is going to take someone caring. Now, for example, I just did a story for Love 225 with a young man who is um, a young black man, him and his brother, they're investing in Scotlandville and they're buying up those properties. You know, he doesn't like the term, but it's essentially, you know, buying back the block, Mm -hmm. you know, buying these properties and now putting things in it that will actually value the community, will add value to the community, Mm -hmm. not just, you know, letting some outsider or outside company come in and bring in that investment, but bringing in those investments in yourself. We don't always have access to those resources. And I think it's just such a, 
it upsets me because I do see that they're in, in the media get treated differently, even though we're one city. But I see why it's, it's from decades, decades of disinvestment, decades of people deciding all the trash should just go there and I'm with those people, knowing that there's people there. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really have an answer for how we fix it. But I do know that the first part is to acknowledge it, to look at it directly and, and at least acknowledge it so that we can all start to step in and figure out what steps need to be taken. Now, the concern for me, anytime we start talking about investing, is the G word that goes around in every city. There we go. Yeah. The minute you start asking for investment, well, the minute someone sees, and you're kind of seeing it in areas of South Baton Rouge right now, of um, gentrification. Seeing it in this area right here where we're sitting. Of people <clears throat> buying up properties yes. that traditionally, historically, black people were pushed there, redlined, and exclusively to be there and then someone coming in and saying oh my god wait this is great like we can do all kinds of cool things here and then before you know it two decades goes by and black folks have been edged out again so this investment is what has happened well the other problem for this area can't Mm -hmm. speak for every area but for this area is while blacks have lived here for three generations few of them own Mm -hmm. what they live on They're still renting. There's a sizable number of residents in the area around Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church where black people are renting, and they're like the second or third generation of renters. We don't own anything. And adjudicated property is a huge problem uh, because— The process of reclaiming and reinvesting in adjudicated property is so convoluted and so difficult, and sometimes the value is not even worth it. When you're talking about a shotgun house that's sat on a lot that's 40 feet wide and 60 feet deep, you've got to have five of them before you can actually do anything with it. I would like to see some spotlight put on improving and streamlining the the, the, the the adjudicated property process that exists within not just this city, but I, I would imagine within this state. Is that something that media could help with? I would say this. The first step is people got to understand how the government works. Like, bare foundational level, I think, even when you start talking about real estate, people need to—there's people in this community who won't even understand the words you just used. Lots of them. We are second to last in education. I had Gary Chambers on tune in this morning. He's hosting an event this weekend, and he's doing it around the country, but he's doing the first one in Baton Rouge. Civics for the people. Yeah. And I say that to say it's super basic. It's not trying to tell you what to think or who to vote for. It's judicial, legislative executive branch. Mm -hmm. Here are the different departments in your city. Here are the different public meetings. Here's the public information that you can request. Here's how you can find out which which properties have tax liens Mm -hmm. that maybe you can go buy, move in, and now you can claim that house without even having... Like, there's so many things on a civic, basic, educational level that people don't know. And again, years. It's been decades in the mm-hmm. making of making sure that people don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also when you're talking about the fact that two and three generations of black folks in this area are still renters, why has it been two or three generations? Well, this is easy math. If we go back and figure out who were the owners, where did they go? And many of them are still owners. And where did they go? They moved. They moved. What, and what do we call that? 
white flight. Yes. Because people get up and they move to other areas that they decided are and then and they but they still own here. But and they still own. We, and hence how we get to gentrification. Yes. Because at some point when they start redoing this hotel, when they start redoing Government Street, they will finally, after decades, see value in this area. And what do they do to the black folks that live there that have been renting there for move two and three years? You move them out. You kick them out. Why? Because now I've got, one, I've got decades of money stacked up that I'm going to invest into this property to raise its value, to meet the value that the government has put into it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And this is how we get pushed out. What you're out. describing is systemic racism. It's systemic racism. And, 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 and nobody wants to acknowledge say that. that racism is systemic. It's not individual and isolated. It is built mm-hmm. into the various systems into that the operate this country. It's built into every block. It's built into every street. It was not by accident. It's, it's by specific design. When people complain about the, the traffic and the interstate, by design. Mm-hmm. Other cities around this country didn't take the approach of running the interstate directly through the city. Well, if you own businesses and I'm in power and I have the opportunity to put a major highway to go right across my business mm-hmm. where you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. To me, to me, the math, math, the issue that I think we have as a community is that people do not understand these very complex ideas. Right. It's very simple when someone says a derogatory term to say you're racist. It's much more complex and convoluted to say that a system is has races, a racism built into it over centuries, over two or three generations. And again, I, I say this every day. We are second to last in education. How can we expect people to understand these complex, long running ideas to fix okay. them? The second to last in education is, is a real thing. Mm-hmm. But added to that, from my perspective, is the desire to deny the truth and obfuscate and to outlaw the teaching mm-hmm. of truth uh, to future generations because they or they say it's because we don't want to make anybody feel bad. Well, okay. You had no problem making my parents feel bad. You had no problem making my grandparents feel bad. You had mm-hmm. no problem making me feel bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but now, all of a sudden, we're, we're going to be so sensitive about other people's feelings that we're not going to teach truth? We're not, we're not going to teach history? We're simply going to ignore it? I hate to keep referencing my background or my work experience, but in that racism special, I did like an opening monologue. And at the end of it, I used a phrase that I learned from a black female officer in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I can tell you about that story later. She said, it's time for people to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, period, full Mm -hmm. stop. When it comes to history, it's not about what you're comfortable with. It's about the truth. I come from a family of educators. My dad taught American history until he retired up a few years ago. This was put in, this was drilled into me of all of these concepts. So I feel like people who did not grow up having those conversations in their home, mm-hmm. not just white folks either. There's a lot of black folks who also can't are not capable of having those conversations. It's time to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. These are this is the truth of our country and of our city specifically. And it's time for people to get uncomfortable. And I know that um education isn't all of it, 
but it's such a big part of it. It is. It's such a huge part of it because people can't possibly um, comprehend bigger, more difficult ideas if they don't have the base foundational knowledge. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about structural racism that's built into our country from almost for more than 400 years like that started in 1619 that is such a complex concept complex concept for most people to break down that they end up taking one little part one little part of um you know reparations and they could that's the only thing that they can think about yes or no because they have to be able to boil it down to this one little thing and not being able to zoom out and get that it is a very complex idea that is built into every it's in all every single one of us from the way we think to the things we learn what we eat where we live where we go to school or church it is built into every single aspect of our lives in this country and it's such a again old running so many generations gone and I, I feel so passionately about it because of that fact that mm -hmm. I get frustrated because I can't have the conversation with everyone because you don't even understand it on a deeper comprehensive level to be able to find the solution or to talk about the issue even because you, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. You work for WBRZ. Mm -hmm. um, the Manship family still owns WBRZ. Am, mm -hmm. am I correct in that? Mm -hmm. When I was a kid, the Manchin family not only owned WBRZ, they also owned The Advocate, uh, State Times Morning Advocate, two papers, same owner. Uh, Guarantee owned WAFB. It's mm -hmm. now owned by some national conglomerate. Great, yeah. uh, WVLA mm -hmm. is owned by a national conglomerate. <laughs> Do you think it's a good thing for local media to be nationally owned as opposed to locally owned? Do you think it's a do you think it's good, bad, or are you indifferent about it? Because I, I would imagine that the, the the perspective of news gathering and news reporting changes depending upon whether you're dealing with a national audience or a local audience. Am I correct in that? So, somewhat. Okay. There's, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both situations. I actually, my first TV job in Lincoln, Nebraska was with one of those um, national companies, okay. the same one that owns one of the stages here, but... Um, and Lincoln and Baton Rouge are actually very similar. They're both the state capitals, state flagship university, um, you know, about the What's same the black population. population so, uh, the population like is, is about the same. The population demographics are different. Okay. Um, so that would be the big thing. And then, of course, we have a, a lot more. There's a higher crime rate. But again, systemic. When you talk, think about systemic issues, that's really more of what's in line with that. Mm -hmm. I say all that to say news gathering is news gathering. Leadership is what makes a difference. I tell people all the time, I like working at Channel 2. I like the fact that it's I can walk into the owner's office right now and that he's going to be in there. That when um, it, it must have been George Floyd. Yeah, it must have been George Floyd in 2020 when I that was when I said I wanted to do a racism special. I went right into Jake Manship's office and sat down and said, "You got a second? So I want to do a special on race." Mm -hmm. And he said, "What you need?" and pulled out a pen and paper. Versus when you're at a national owned 
when you're talking about doing some type of special, there may be a little bit more red tape. And that doesn't mean that it can't happen because, again, your newsroom is run by the leadership in the newsroom. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the difference in that. The thing that I know is at the end of the day, the news industry is not doing well as an industry. Um, newspapers are dying. Um, reporters are being replaced with how do I say it? Um, not replaced. You can get the feed from other places. And when you work with a national, when you're owned by a national company, you can get the feed from all over the country. The thing that cannot That be was an experiment in local news here a couple of years ago. I believe it was WVLA. They didn't actually have a local team they the the news was actually being pumped in from outside from someplace else yes and the value especially at a locally family-owned company is that y'all don't know us like i know us mm -hmm. and they that can't be replicated you know what i mean if mm -hmm. you can't step onto southern's campus and get the have the type of rapport with people that i have or get the kind of information that i have with people mm -hmm. uh, you know an ai a computer can't take that from me mm -hmm. so when it comes to journalism whether it's on a local level in print or on, or on tv your connection to the people, your ability to storytell, your ability to go beyond the who, what, when, where, why, what we call the inverted pyramid, your ability to connect with actual humans mm -hmm. is what makes all the difference. And I think that working for a locally family-owned company, um, that gives me an advantage because, again, the owners are right there. They can see that I have a connection with people. You know what I'm saying? They can see that um, the stories that I have are people-based and not number, statistic, data-driven. You mentioned that... Local media is not doing so well. Or media, journalism in general. Journal the state of journalism media. all over the country is not doing well. I'm old enough to still want the paper paper, not mm -hmm. the digital. I can get it on my phone, but I prefer actually having the newspaper in my hand. Uh, younger people don't tend to gravitate towards that. They get their news in small bites, they barely read more than the headline, and they think that they know the entirety of the story based upon the headline. What can be done to offset that, to, to change the trajectory of, of journalism? Outside of shaming? Because I'm not sure. Um, like I said, I came from a family of educators. Mm -hmm. So it was drilled into me. And I've had to drill it into my husband. I will be drilling it into my son, okay? Um, my grandparents, my paran, my dad, they took me into the voting booth with them every single time when I was a kid mm -hmm. to press those little typewriter-like buttons and to pull that lever. Um, that has to be taught to people. Now, when it comes to the headline reading, I always say, make the headlines interesting. Like, that is, that is a huge part of but journalism. But if you write an article, I'm not a journalist. Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by them, but I, I, I'm not a journalist. My understanding is if you write the article, somebody else writes the headline. And the headline often does not really convey what the story is about. And sometimes you have to get down to the third or fourth paragraph mm -hmm. before you actually get to the meat of mm -hmm. the story. So if you're just reading the headline, you think you're being informed. And in point of fact, more often than not, you're being misinformed. This is why I say education, because people don't have a... The, the, the sense that you're having of mm -hmm. saying that this headline is a very small portion of what's actually in the story. The headline is really just there to get you to read into the story. Mm -hmm. 
I would say education because people do, are not able to um, separate what's just a headline, what's a clickable headline, like what was a headline that was just written to get my attention mm -hmm. versus um, a, the quality inside the, of the content in the report, okay? People are not able to distinguish between a blog that has posted an article and versus the Associated Press that has posted that article. People mm -hmm. are not able to differentiate between sourcing mm -hmm. and being able to say, okay, this is credible, knowledgeable information coming from this place. And I, I, much, I love the internet, but I also it's like a gift and a curse. It really is because it connects people, but there's so much information and there's no regulation that people are getting their information from wherever they want to and they're not being taught to source that information. Is it a .org? Is it a .edu? Is it a .gov? Or is it just by com that's writing this delicious headline to get your attention. Who wrote the article? I learned in college from the late Dr. Troy Allen. He taught um, African-American studies at Southern. He, he taught a lot of different history courses. But he would ask in class, you know, people would raise their hands and say what you're saying right there. They would, I read, and they would give a quick synopsis, and he would ask a two or three more questions to get more knowledgeable, credible information from mm -hmm. them. The first question he would ask, and he asked the same question every time, where did you read it and who wrote it? Do you know how often people would couldn't wait to share what they got in their head that they read, but couldn't tell you who wrote it? Now, is that credible? Can I take the knowledge, the information that you're giving me as anything credible? Mm -hmm. uh, this is when I say education. I mean the critical thinking of education, of being able to filter through where this information came from, what was the purpose of it? Like, who was the person that wrote it, and did they have another intent in their writing? Were they trying to persuade me into thinking something? Same thing with, um, I tell people all the time, a lot of people my age like to complain about, um, like, CNN and Fox and MSNBC. And, yes, everybody is biased to an extent, okay? Even... Every nobody can tell stories without bringing their own personal experience, background information to it. Okay, in a way that helps, that affects how they present it. When you're watching CNN, I'm gonna use them for example, or MSNBC. There are reporters, there are journalists who just are at the Capitol to tell you the who, what, when, where, why that happened today. Then there are talking heads that are pundits, there to yeah. give the pundits, to give you their opinion. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people run with that part of it as the news, and they missed that that little 190-second report at the beginning where they said Senator so-and-so introduced Bill so-and-so, and the bill the vote went this way, and now it's headed to the president's desk. Mm -hmm. That's the news. Mm -hmm. That's the actual credible, inf informative part of this. Um, same thing like you're saying with the headlines. Instead of reading into it and finding the part that is the actual news part, People take the parts that they most attach to that are easy to digest, and they go with that. Not everyone, but I know that that's a part of it. Now, again, news is a business. It's not a nonprofit. You know what I'm saying? So, And that's the worst thing that happened to television news, uh, in my opinion. I remember the time before 24-hour news. I, I remember pre-CNN. Mm -hmm. I remember when CNN hit the airwaves. When news ceased to be information-based and started being profit-based, when, when people started saying we can make money mm -hmm. doing this if we do it from a certain perspective, pointed in a certain direction, I believe that's when news went off track. And I know it happens in television and social media, but in, in in print media, such as it is here, I see it as well. Baton Rouge 
is a very conservative mm-hmm. news uh, community. Uh, the Advocate, less conservative than Bad News Business Report, but but is an is, is an extremely conservative uh, uh, newsprint outlet. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you get people to read? three different papers as opposed to one. I mean, I I spend a lot of time mm-hmm. reading. Uh, uh, I feel like it's my responsibility to be as informed as I can be so that when I share with people both on our uh, social media uh, outlets and our social justice outlets, uh, as well as what we preach and teach on Sunday morning. I think I think it's my responsibility to be as informed as I possibly can be. I can't just trust the advocate. Mm-hmm. I read the advocate every day. Can't just trust the advocate. So I also read the Washington Post. I also read the New York Times. I also read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Mm-hmm. I also read Bad News, but I can't stand Ralph McAllister. Hey, Rolf, how you doing? I can't stand Rolf McAllister, but he writes an excellent mm-hmm. paper. He, he's handed it off to somebody else now, but but it's an excellent paper. Mm-hmm. Don't agree with 95% of what's in there, but at least I am aware of it, mm-hmm. and, and I'm informed. What can be done to, to encourage up-and-coming generations of people to just be more informed? Do you know how many people come into the newsroom or into the news stations, and not just at WBRZ, but into news stations, and they want to be on TV, and they never watch the news? And, like, they meet me, and they think that I'm one of—I'm like, no, I can't relate. Like, I always watch the news. I always have, and I always will. Um, I think a part of it is when I tell the Jay Leno thing, um, when I go to classes, sometimes I will ask those small— to me, low ball civic questions mm-hmm. and people can't give me an answer. This mm-hmm. is why you need to watch the news. My dad would always put it into the perspective of you ever walked out your house and saw flashing lights and like wondered what's going on down there? Well, you can't just assume. Well, there's people whose job it is to know and to mm-hmm. inform you of what's going on. Um, I think that that's something that happens, especially with young people. So I'm constantly encouraging them to know what's going on in the world around you. That does not necessarily mean know what's going on overseas in Iraq and Iran. It's more of what's happening right here in your community. You know what I'm saying? Who is the clerk of court? Who do you go? Where do you go when it's time to get XYZ license? If you need um, this information, if you missed, let's say your school board has enacted some new book that you don't like for whatever reason. We're seeing that right now. People well, are putting it together. We're banning them now. So but, but, <laughs> but keep on going. But still, I get a, your point. There's a new there's a new rule at the school that maybe you don't like as a parent or even as a student. Mm-hmm. How did that rule get into place? Well, it was introduced three months ago. Mm-hmm. There was a whole process that it went through. People have to take it upon themselves to know that. And I'm. I I agree with you on the um, cable news because it is such a heavy focus on the national politics that I think people are disengaged with the local level. There is news right here. Absolutely. And it's not just, you know, crime. It's a lot. There is a lot of decisions that are being made for you and not on your behalf. 
people have to take it upon themselves. And I understand. I try to, again, I started the conversation before we started recording with grace. I try to give people grace. And I try to be understanding to the fact that we're last in education. So the foundational level of understanding how the government works already wasn't there. We only got one civics class, and I think it's required in Louisiana um, core curriculum. Um, they have to want to know. But how do you want to know if you're worried about my mama got to eat, like my kids got to be fed, I have to take care of my household, I have to get a job? How how can I focus on, how can I, I have to stop my own bleed first <laughs> before I focus on these other issues? Mm-hmm. My thing for people is, where tell me where you're bleeding. And let me show you how the news can maybe answer some of those questions or point you into the direction of where the issue was coming from in the first place. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of times um, people, I don't have time to worry about that because I'm focusing on whatever this particular healthcare issue is. Well, we've been reporting on this for weeks and maybe we can point you to the right direction of either resources, how this problem started in the first place, where it started, or we've been covering it for weeks. Um, I think a lot of times people are so focused on their everyday that they're not seeing the big picture and how it relates not just to them and their family, but their neighbors, people right there on their blocks, on their streets. Um, I, I get this all the time. And, and the young people, when I go to the classrooms and I, and I go to broadcasting and mass comm classes and I ask, people, ask the kids what they want to do, everybody wants to be named some news personality. Okay, well, she went to law school. Like this one, they actually know about the stuff that they are up there talking about. Mm -hmm. So you have to find a way to also be engaged with that information before you can. And I know that for me, that was the thing I said, like I told you, with my family, they kind of made me be engaged with the information and not just having it fed to me, but engaging with how this directly relates to me. And I know, like, in Lapidville, the police jury was the first time I learned about that. And Mm -hmm. I realized that, okay, well, not every little town has a police jury. Some people have mayors, and they have a council. And being able to put together how what those people do, take it a step further. And like I said, in South Louisiana or in the South, uh, we got a a strong black community, right? There's a a large black population that other parts of the country may not have. It may be a little—the demographics may be different. Um, You know people right there in your community who are a part of this decision-making, people that you know— that can help you understand how these things relate to you. So I think people just have to be engaged with finding their connection to the news. And it's not always just crime stories or somebody particular that you know. All of these things relate to us, even if it's just getting the traffic report, getting the updates on um, road projects, getting updates on you know what the mayor is doing. People are engaged in mayoral elections. They're engaged in gubernatorial elections. We know that because we know how um, how much higher voter turnout is during those elections. Mm-hmm. So keeping up with, you know, the governor appoints the secretary for the Department of Transportation and Development, keeping up with what the that department is doing and looking when you step out on your street, well, they're not working on my road. And now you can be engaged in the news process because mm-hmm. you're understanding exactly when you hear DOTD. Well, I want to know what they're working on because our street or our main highway has been, you know, terrible for a while. But they're spending millions of dollars in another side of town or on another project and now you can be engaged because you can realize where people's efforts and attention are going but your attention got to be there too not saying you I'm saying I understand. yeah I yeah. get it one more question and then I want to turn attention to Love 225 in your opinion as a veteran newscaster does television news well does news period does news 
report or does news shape as far as thinking is concerned? Political thinking. I think... The, is, is, is it the responsibility of I think the shaping is indirect. Is, it's not our job. So your job is to report. My job is to report. But it is more an, and more, mm-hmm. it shapes. It is an indirect consequence. I don't... What do you mean by indirect? Because I can point out a couple of direct things to me. Mm-hmm. Again, I am not a journalist, so... Mm-hmm. I, I I stand to be corrected, and I don't I don't have a problem being corrected. Mm-hmm. But when you report something that happens in North Baton Rouge and said that it's near Southern University, oh, I'm ready for this one because I'm, I'm I feel strongly about that one. You don't say the same thing when it's near LSU. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, okay, so if it happened on McKinley Street, you're three blocks from LSU, LSU. Mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. LSU's mm-hmm. name does not come up. In that, mm-hmm. uh, but but if it happens on Seventy Second Avenue mm-hmm. in Banks, which is farther away from Southern mm-hmm. than McKinley Street is it's from LSU, LSU. Mm-hmm. we say uh, a murder took place on Seventy Second Avenue near Southern University, and they say it almost like it's an afterthought. Mm-hmm. But you are actually shaping people's a, perceptions, a, 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 yeah. a political and philosophical mindset mm-hmm. by the way that you report. And I don't see that as accidental. I don't see that as incidental. I see that as intentional. Mm-hmm. Correct me, please. It's systemic, just like everything else in our country. I wish I hadn't the actual numbers pulled up, but the news industry, whether you're looking at print, broadcast, radio, overwhelmingly white and male. Boom. <clears throat> Full stop right there. And when you consider that, then you already know why the articles or stories you see here. And they lines up with every market, uh, not every, but most of the market across most of this country is the same thing. Because news, the news industry from its inception has largely, and up until the last 30, 40 years, Largely only white and male. Barbara Walters just died, and she was the first female to ever get on. You get what I'm saying? When you think about the um, the history, just like with everything else we've been talking about, well, it becomes crystal clear because we're not in those conversations. Mm-hmm. We're not in the conversations writing the headlines. For decades, we weren't in the conversations doing the stories, pitching the stories, getting our ideas published. And it really, literally wasn't until relatively recently that those demographics have started to shift Tiny bit. Do you write so, your own script or does someone write a script for you as a news reporter? Okay, so my show is four hours. <laughs> it really just depends. Right. When I'm doing my own story, like I, this was my story concept mm-hmm. or assignment that was given to me mm-hmm. that I do every, I write every single part of that. Okay. Our morning broadcast is four hours. So it is a team of people. Mm-hmm. But this is why that word representation okay. is so very important. We need, and I, I want, want you people to finish. But, but, but I really want to ask a question. The part that mm-hmm. that you don't write. Uh-huh. Let's go back to seventy second. But that's let me get to it. Let me get to it. Let me get to it. Okay. The part that I don't write. I need a black producer. I don't have I don't have any black producers right now. Do you have the latitude to say I'm not going to say near Southern yes, University? Yes, all the time. This is why representation is important. Okay. I can one right now on my particular ship, I'm the only one. Me and one other person. 
there's nobody doing the writing. I don't have a black director. Mm-hmm. We don't have, um, we, we are, does that make sense? Yes. Like, this is why it matters. And this is why when I go in the classrooms and I'm talking to, we want y'all in the, I need y'all in the newsrooms. It can't just be me banging the table all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because what happens is, let's use the example you have about near Southern University. I am the one. It is the weight of the world is on me to be like, hey, I, I don't think that's an accurate headline. And here's my one, two, three, four, five reasons why mm-hmm. it should be changed or needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. If I can't already just change it myself, if it's something that has to be brought to the group, here's why I think it should be changed. But it's just me. We need more like that. We need it can't continue to be, and not just in this industry. This applies to think about healthcare. You think about law. Got to be in the room at the table to be able to bring the things to people's attention and or to be in the position of power in the managerial positions to to write those law, not laws, but to make the changes effective for everyone immediately. Mm-hmm. But the representation is important um, when you, you're talking about scripts. Producers write scripts. Reporters write their script for their story. But producers write scripts. How many black producers do we have in this market? I How many know. black reporters I are there at the newspapers? I can tell you it's not a lot. (laughs) So the representation is important. Um, Right now, what I see when I go into the classrooms, into the collegiate classrooms, everybody want to do sports. Everybody want to be on CNN. Nobody wants to do the work. And the work is feet to the pavement, who, what, when, where, why, going meet with Pastor Fred, getting into South Baton Rouge, you know, developing a rapport with people. Mm -hmm. um, And they're not going to do it. And not, I mean, them. (laughs) Um, The black kids have to be here to do it. Now, on the other side of that, to recruit them to the industry, remember I told you it's a dying industry. It doesn't always pay a lot. It's not super glamorous like people think. There's no one doing my hair and makeup or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of work. So we're in this position of... We need more representation. We're just getting to a point where we're seeing a little bit more representation. Some more of those conversations are being pushed to the forefront. There's also some social and society things that I think that have been happening over the last 10, 20 years or so that has kind of forced news, you know, from electing the first black president to the reckoning on race from over the last really several years. I, if you ask me as a journalist, I think it really kind of started in the modern time with like Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. um, like with the cell phone internet time, I mean, of Trayvon Martin and then of black folks connecting and wanting to be more informed about what's going on out there and taking our kitchen table conversations and making them, pushing them to the forefront. So much so that we're watching news have to keep up with what black folks are on the internet talking about. This happens mm-hmm. all the time. I watched all the time on the national media that the media which I really hate that phrase, is late to the game Mm -hmm. of what the black folks are already talking about. But you know who could help the media get on board with what black folks are already talking about? Black folks in the newsrooms, black folks in the media. But it's hard, again, when we're talking about systemic racism, there's other things at play. It's not always easy to get the job in there, given those opportunities. It's... complex but when it comes to the specific thing you're talking about of the headlines and connecting to the black university or to the white area of town and old south baton rouge and north baton rouge representation i can't be the only person in there that's beating the drum somebody else got to come in there and, and be a part of informing other people who may not be aware like you know right now the industry um it's a lot of 
I'm not going to say kids, but Gen Z, you know, they're just graduating college. They're starting their careers. They're just going to follow the template that has been laid for them. Mm-hmm. And if the template that has been laid for them is North Baton Rouge and Old South Baton Rouge and near LSU, they're just going to follow that. They are completely ignorant to the context of that, right? So it's going to take people who do have an understanding of that context, the history, the long... And again, I'm not saying that they should be ignorant to it, but they are. And they are in the positions of writing headlines. So what do we do? I, we need, I need more representation in the newsroom. And not just in my newsroom. This is an industry-wide thing. I can pop, pull so many articles mm-hmm. that talk about that same thing. Um, last year, or was it 2021, when we were having a lot of the rising um, Asian hate crimes... A, a swell of those articles came out too of the few Asian American journalists there are saying, "Hey, we need more of us because like I'm overwhelmed trying to cover this, and it seems like no one else cares." Mm-hmm. And representation, representation, representation. It can't just be me. I don't want to be the representative for all Black people. I need more of us in there. Mm-hmm. I need the population in the media spaces to represent the actual populations that they serve. Tell me about Love Two Two Five. Did I talk too much? I'm sorry. No, you're doing great. Okay. <laughs> okay. In fact, I'm going to have to ask you to, if you would make the time to come back. Okay. I've got more questions okay. to ask. But um, I know we, we, I've already expended a lot of your time. Uh, no, no, no. I owed you. I owed you. Um, no, Love to Do Five, um, a passion project of mine. I, I find a lot of fulfillment um, out of creating something out of nothing like there was nothing here and now we made something okay Mm -hmm. even going back to like when I was a little kid like I told you I would make my sisters put on these Destiny's Child concerts and my whole family would have to suffer through it for 30 minutes I I recognize now that that was the fulfillment I got out of that of there was nothing nobody was doing anything Mm -hmm. and we just did a whole show (laughs) <laughs> and everyone has been entertained, yeah. even if it wasn't good. So um, Love 225, I guess I always watched a lot of shows growing up, you know, that highlighted cultural stuff. You know, I, all of the black sitcoms from the 90s and, you know, shows that just showed us and showed life and stuff that made me happy. And news, especially since the pandemic, really since, since I started my TV career November whatever the day is, 2016, the day after the 2016 election. So it has not been like a super positive vibe <laughs> the whole time. There's been a lot of historical events that have gone on. So news can be very draining. But when I step out into the community, you know, moving back home, when I step out into the community, there's so much here. Mm-hmm. There's so many talented people. There's so many people that have things that do things that share things there's small stories that need to be shared and everything's not going to make it to a news broadcast the news really does need to focus on the stuff that impacts people directly whether that be you know crime in in your neighborhood or um traffic or weather you need to know that but then there's these other things more featurey type stuff that Mm -hmm. doesn't get highlighted so we say that love 225 is the home for color and culture of the greater baton rouge area to show you exactly what makes the 225 such a very very special place like I'm old enough to remember when um 225 became the area code like I remember that when I was in middle school it was a huge deal we had like whole worksheets to remember the new area codes of 985 and 504 and 225 so um I just take a lot of pride in you know being from two and a quarter and I think that there's a lot of value here I know we get a lot of comparisons to New Orleans because it's a bigger fancier city up the road but there's a lot here um I I mentioned the Mason Dixie Dixie line 
the history just in the geographical layout of Baton Rouge is spectacular. The fact that it's along the, the Mississippi River, the fact that there's literally a geographical line that, that historically has separated the two sides of town, but there's so much that they all do together, that mm -hmm. we all do together. We kind of refuse to acknowledge just the history of LSU and Southern, how Southern got to be there, um, different artists, musicians. Um, on the second episode, we interviewed Mr. Henry Watson. He's a, a master painter in New Rose. He takes cypress wood and he carves out the pictures. And so it's a carved picture, but then he paints that. So if you know anything about cypress, we could dump that into the river, and in 300 years, someone's going to find it, and it's still going to have his carving in it. And that's really, really, really cool. And that's not the kind of stuff that you really have time to show on TV. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the news, um, I was telling you about the young man in Scotlandville with Lighthouse Pizza and Bar um, and just their efforts to bring a little bit of luxury to an area of town that has seen decades of disinvestment, like mm -hmm. I was saying earlier. That that that's a long form thing. You can't really say that in a in a two three minute package on the evening news. So um, it's really just a, a a space to highlight what we have here. I mean, I love it here. I'm here. My family is here. You know, it's just a space to to really kind of highlight some of that. Do you have any aspiration toward national news? Or are you content doing? local news or I, a fair question that is a fair <clears throat> question i will tell you this coming from the little girl in labityville like pretending to be this i say every day especially when i'm frustrated um if i never do any more than what i've done so far i'm more than happy mm. i'm super fulfilled i want an emmy I won an Emmy, like the little girl. And, and that can't be taken away from me. Like on the bottom of the statuette, it says that if this person dies, it has to be returned to the National Academy of Television Science Arts. Like that means really? so much. Yes. Yes. So if I were if I had to stop today, I'm grateful and I'm so have come so far from being the little girl on the bayou pretending to be this person. So if I never do anything else, I'm grateful. But whatever the Lord has for me, I'm open. <laughs> you bring up the Lord. This is a church podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time I ask people what impact their faith has on what they do. So let me ask you, what, what impact does your faith have on what you're doing now? Well, um, I grew up going to Catholic school, and my family is not very religious, but they are spiritual. Love was definitely the um, main driver in our house, and I don't mean just in like a rhetorical kind of way. It was very clear that and it was told to me that, like, we are rich in this. We have been blessed by God. My grandfather is 95 years old. And, um, like, the older I get and the more he tells me about his story and how he came to be, you know, he's truly the patriarch of our family. Mm -hmm. um, and when I talk to him about where how he got to be here to the fact that now he has all these great grandkids and stuff, um, he talks to me about how this was really just a few months ago. He gets on his knees and he thanks God every single night for protecting him, for blessing him and for giving him all the love in the world that he could share it with his wife mm -hmm. and that they together could share it with their kids and that their kids, it would be instilled in their kids to share with their kids and so on and so forth. Um, I would say that my faith has been tremendous. 
I'm not going to cry. I'm a super spiritual person. You know, I even, I'm not religious. I'm not, and I'm not good at, um, being a, my grandmother, my other grandmother always jokes that me and my dad, y'all heathens. Um, but she says it, she says it in jest, Mm -hmm. but like, I know one thing that I've done or I'm pretty proud of is that, um, I pray with my son every night. And the only thing we don't pray for anything. All we do is say, thank you. So we do, you know, little rote memorization prayers and then, all right, God, I'm thankful for, and he names off nothing but people. Nothing but people. I get a lot of pride and joy in that. People, my paran is no longer with us. He always says, I thank God for Uncle Bo. And I thank God for every single person and knowing that that is, those threads are what brought him and our existence together. I think that my, like I said earlier, when I was like flunking out of school and didn't know what I was going to do, I prayed so much, God, if you could just give me a sign. One of the things I always pray for, just give me a sign that I'm moving towards the right thing, right? And I knew I wasn't because nothing was working out. Everything would always fall apart in some capacity. The minute things, I started to do things on the plan that I think that God has had for me, things started to fall into place. Mm-hmm. It was much easier. It was a lot less of a stressful road. Um, I truly believe in that faith the size of a mustard seed. And when you actually like go in a store and look at a jar of mustard seeds and you realize how small it is, you don't, you shouldn't have, to, it shouldn't be that hard to believe in things that you cannot see. So while, like I said, I'm not religious, I have a lot of faith that there is a, a, a higher power that the Lord is not just with me, but knows me, has created me, and has created a purpose and plan for my life that all I have to do is continue to watch for the signs that I'm on the right path, and I'm just going to do that. So I always pray for, order my steps, you know, keep me on the the right thing. Now, the one thing I'm always preaching to people, not preaching because I'm not a preacher, that's your job, would be um, (laughs) faith without works is dead. Mm -hmm. So while I do believe that everything that I ever dreamed of as a kid can be mine if I wanted to. I know that I have to continue to do the work in line, in perfect harmonious alignment with the plan that the Lord has for me in order to get to whatever it is that I'm trying to get to in the end. You've said twice that you're not religious, but that you are spiritual. I find that with succeeding generations of African Americans, their commitment to an organized church, whether it be Baptist, Catholic, denominational or non-denominational, is waning. Mm -hmm. From your own perspective, and this is not a challenge, I'm just trying to learn, Mm -hmm. why do you think that is? Um, And I know it's not every church, and I know it's not every um, religious leader. Judgment, man. Judgment and not understanding and grace. And I think that that's a part of it. You know, obviously the Catholic Church has uh, uh, Google it, you know, why someone may feel um, disconnected. Um, But when it comes to organized religion or faith leaders in general, I think it's because sometimes young people feel judged. And when you go in the house of the Lord and you feel judged, that's not not a great place. I want to feel loved. Mm -hmm. I want to feel accepted. You know what I'm saying? I think that that's a part of it. Um, and like I'm always telling my husband, there's always going to be a disconnect 
just like when my dad was a teenager and they were listening to whatever they were listening to and my grandpa who listened to jazz like really real jazz was like we're not listening to that boogity bop you know what I mean mm-hmm. there's gonna always be a, dis- a, a disconnect I think um, in the language and communication but I think if love is the core and the focus the acceptance that may be a thing I know I know, yeah, I think that that's, that's just a part of it. Now, I also feel like people on my side just have to be open, you know what I'm saying, to what church leaders have to offer them. And sometimes it's not easy to hear what you don't want to hear, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that. So I don't know why young people seem to be disconnected, but I do think that a way to connect is um, you got to meet them where they are. And if it's lots of... Um, old school traditions they're not going to be open to hearing that and i don't know how to make that 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 would be your area of mm-hmm. expertise but i do think that that's why um, i'm asking the question because yeah, I, I i truly want to learn yeah i think i think young people feel criticized and judged and sometimes in the case of uh, a lot of young people you don't want to hear what you don't want to hear but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be open to it mm-hmm. <laughs> when sterling happened uh, i was troubled not just by the horror of what happened to him, but I was disturbed by the number of young people who don't go to anybody's church saying the church needs to step up. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. well, I don't know how you're going to tell me what I need to do mm-hmm. if you're not a part of it. My wife is an AKA. I got a whole lot of opinions about sororities and fraternities. I don't belong to any of them. So the first thing that comes out of her mouth anytime I begin to say something about Greeks. But you're not in it. You don't, you don't belong. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about because, because, because you don't belong. I understand the frustration that I have sons that are 28 and 26. I, I understand the frustrations that go along with church from younger generations. Uh, everything from worship is too long to you hypocrites because you talk about one thing, but then you do something else. But when things like Sterling happens, when things like the 16 flood happens and I hear young people saying, well, where's the church? What's the church? Well, where are you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you a part of this? Why aren't you there with us in the church helping Mm -hmm. to to prompt us to do the things Mm -hmm. that need to be done? There's a whole lot more that can be said if you're at the table than if you're outside yelling in at what y'all ain't doing. Mm -hmm. Just my little thought on that. Going back to kind of what we were saying about um, political engagement, it's the same thing. If you're not voting, if you're not engaged in this process, how are you going to be hooping and hollering that such and such has made a decision? Going back to the history, you know, um, I do this Black History Month series every year, and over the last few years, I've really, truly recognized the importance the black church has had, not just on religious and spiritual connections, but on political engagement. Yes, absolutely. Maybe that's a way of getting young people back into the church. I, last week, I 
left work to go get a, a energy drink and the lady at CVS stopped me to say the same thing. You should do a story about how where the um, church leaders when all of this is happening. And I'm like, they do peace walks all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. They're in my inbox all the time. Where mm-hmm. are you? Maybe that's a way that political engagement, getting back to, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago of I did a story last year in Plaquemine. Um, there's a Baptist church there. The NAACP, the guy from he was actually stationed in St. Francisville, had come down here to help them or- organize. And they met at the church. State police brought horses into that church. There's pictures of it, like to shut them down and to pepper spray and to arrest everybody. Um, but when you think about it, that the, the pastor had opened up the door seven, eight o'clock, you know, on a Wednesday, Thursday night, just so the young people had a place to go mm-hmm. where we could lock the doors and y'all could all meet to talk about the political engagement. I think maybe we need to get back to the church being um, not just a core part of the weekly routine, but a core part of the community and that it is the community. And I'm sure your church is used that way because I've never been to a church that's not used that way. It's the community hub for everything. When they have a little carnival, a little festival, they're going to do it over here. You know, if they want to um, trick, trick, what they call it, trick, trunk or treat where they do the trunks with the trick-or-treating do it in the church parking lot mm-hmm. making it more bringing it back to the community engagement of, of a place of open doors and open arms which i'm not saying that you aren't but um i think that that maybe that's a part of it but again we're going see we're going in a cycle when you think about the conversation we were having earlier mm-hmm. but if they don't know about the government and about all of these processes and the things that's going on in their city why would they go to the church and maybe I don't know. I think some of these things are um, cyclical, um, but I, I know that that's one thing that I've grown a greater appreciation appreciation for over the last few years of the black church in this country having a long history of being a community hub for political engagement, for, mm-hmm. um, you know, re- fellowship and for the community just to be a, pl- a place that's safe and happy for the community to be. So I don't I don't really have an answer for you, Pastor. No, but mm-hmm. you, you, you've given me insights and, and I appreciate that. Last question. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate the time that you have given to us. This has been great. I typically ask people, uh, you, you're a mom, you're a wife, you have one son. Mm hmm. Do you want your child to grow up in Baton Rouge? In this area? Like EBR? Baton Rouge. As a resident of Baton Rouge, as a person who makes their living in Baton Rouge, would you want, and I know it's the child's decision, Mm -hmm. would you want your child to grow up and make his life in Baton Rouge? I see a tremendous brain drain especially among African-American people. They go to school, go to Southern, go to LSU, and then they try to get away from here as fast Mm -hmm. as they can. Many of them go to Texas, Houston, Dallas. Uh, Some of them go to Memphis. They go somewhere else, Mm -hmm. and they make their lives there. Would you want your son to plant his flag in Baton Rouge? Being that my son is going to have to grow up a a black man in America, I want him to go wherever there's going to be an opportunity for him to create potential generational wealth or to create his own legacy. That's my first answer. Second answer, um, this idea was actually really posed to me when I first moved back home by Courtney Scott. She works in the mayor's office. Um, She's very well known. She's super cool. I think she's like one of the coolest people here. Um, She and I were on a panel together and she talked about how she had done that, you know, had left and then she realized, you know what? 
is here. Like everything that's in me that I'm taking there Mm -hmm. to go make it is here. Mm -hmm. Everything that has made me who I am, everything that I know and love is here. So if some opportunity were to bring my son or to keep my son in Baton Rouge as a mom, I'm going to be happy. (laughs) If I'm here, I'm happy Mm -hmm. because I just want him to be close. But I want him to go wherever the opportunity is going to is presented for him. I hope that that opportunity is here. I I would hope that it's close to his family because I grew up close to I grew up where I could call my other grandmother to come fuss at these grandparents. You know, um, those familial connections, those friendships, there's a lot of legacy of of his family that's going to be here. You Mm -hmm. know, so I would hope that he has a value and an appreciation for that. But again, going back to the, the story, what we've been talking about with politics and education, will it? That's the question. I'm, I'm asking Louisiana, will it? Will the opportunity be presented for the black kids that leave Southern University in whatever field or LSU or whatever field to be here? Or will they have to go somewhere else? You know, because I don't think it's fair, especially for black kids, especially, you know, um, with knowing the, our history in this country to say, you got to stay here and be the one that builds this up. Mm-hmm. So I got to sacrifice for decades of, you know, no, I think that wherever that opportunity is for each person, remember what I told you, my grandmother told me, nobody got to live your life but you, and I want you to be happy. Mm -hmm. So if you're happy with it, but of course I'm going to instill in my son that this is home. And um, it was something that I had to learn to appreciate as a kid. Like as a a child, when you travel and you see other places, well, why do y'all want to live here? You know, well, now I know because everything that's in me that I think is special came from here. Mm-hmm. It came from people who were from here. So I have to have a certain gratitude and appreciation. So if he's here, great. If not, because the opportunity took him some el- somewhere else, I just hope that he knows that what's in him that he's taking out there, you know, not his talents and skills and special smarts, but what's in him that makes him special. It came from here. It came from people who were from here, from a long line, line of people who were from here. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that's the part at least that he can take with him. But ideally, I'm all about the boot. I'm always, always going to be about the boot. There's nowhere else like South Louisiana, anywhere else in this country. It's a super special place with super beautiful people and a lot to offer. So I hope that everyone learns to have a, an appreciation for it. It's not just muddy swamp water. There's a lot of, lot of beauty there. Mrs. Brandy B. Harris, thank you so very much for taking the time to come and share with us today. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time.